open up this book, that this letter was written by Jude. Imagine that. Um, and this isn't Hey Jude from the Beatles song, and I'll stop making the joke now that I'm done teaching it. You know, I won't make that joke anymore. But the point is, is that Jude was a half-brother of Jesus. Half-brother because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus, not Jude. And he was also, I'd like to point out, a non-believer of Jesus, though he lived with him and his family. Um, so, but the main theme can be found in verse 3, where he says, contend for the faith. The author is Jude, and he writes to those who are, in verse 1, called by God, sanctified by God, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, we know what called means. If somebody calls you, they're, they're choosing you, they're communicating with you. God has called you if you are in Christ. And we know what preserved means because we've all eaten preserves before. Or at the very least, you've eaten meat that was preserved in the freezer. Uh, but the idea is that he keeps us, and those who he calls, he sanctifies Sanctify means that he catches you, he calls you, he cleanses your life. It's a process and it will be a lifelong process, but then he's also to keep, able to keep us, keep us. He saved us from the corruption of this world, but he's also going to continue to save us. He's going to continue to keep us in his love. And so as we look at that, he's writing to you and I who are in Christ, but then, the purpose of the letter, or the original intended purpose, was that he was going to write to us, because he's writing to the church at large, concerning this common, or this mutual, this shared faith that we've been called to. We've been called to faith in Christ, and he's called us in this way, but he was going to write to us about salvation. But as he was thinking about, and as he was praying over the church, he realized that he had something that was more important he needed to write about. He strongly encourages them to contend for the faith. The word contend means to strive for or to vie in a contest, to struggle against, to wrestle with, or a rivalry against difficulties in order to maintain. Now, if you've been watching basketball, which many of you have, your children are playing basketball. Maybe you're watching uh, the football as, as we're getting toward. I know no, some, none of you are watching football because of the guy that kneels. But in case any of you were, um, there's always this contention against one another, right? There's this fighting, this battle to score the most points. And sometimes the battle's more evident than others. I was watching Heartland Football Friday on Friday. And every one of the scores didn't look like there was a contention going on. It looked like a landslide, like, you know, 60 to 20, or, you know, like the South Iron game, 109 to 11, the game that will live in infamy in Bismarck, and in South Iron probably. That wasn't even fun for them, right? That's not a contention. That's one team landsliding the other. It's not even fun to watch, but when there's two teams, we, what do we call a good game? One where we go back and forth with the lead, there's just, they're so equal in opposition that it's just like you don't know who's going to win until the very last moments of the game. And that's the one we get, I get riled up about. So he's going to say, here, I want you to contend for the faith. Why is he going to say contend for the faith? Because he says in verse 4 that there are cer certain men, I called them creepy men last week, there are certain creepers who have come in unnoticed, and they're apostates. He says they've crept into the church, that's why they're unnoticed, and they're seeking to get their own will done rather than the will of God done. And so because of that, they are marked, number one, they are apostates, and apostates are those who have turned away from God, and they have turned to go their own way. Interesting, because Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him, meaning Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And by his wounds, we are healed from our apostasy. We all have this intentionally, uh, by our flesh, because of the sin within us, this, this tendency to turn away from God and do our own thing. And you don't have to teach a baby to rebel 
they rebel from the beginning. They're cute, but they are sinful. And it starts to manifest itself. It's two and three years old as they begin to talk. Next thing you know, the first word they learn is no. And then they, you don't have to teach them to do what you say not to do. Judah is cute, my son, but the reality is, is if I ask him to do something, he smiles at me, <laughs> and he says, nope. And then, of course, it's fun until he says no enough times, and I go, okay, get your tiny hiney right here, and we're going to have a little talk about who's in charge. Uh, obviously, he is, right? <laughs> But these creepers come in unnoticed. They've already turned from God. They're doing their own will. And so they cause division in the church. And they cause many to depart from the faith because many will follow them. Many times these apostates come in and they sound very reasonable. They're very charismatic. And they, they take a following with them. But they're unnoticed. They're creepers. They're ungodly. And they are cursed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, Psalm 1 says. But in his law, he meditates day and night. But what it says at the end of Psalm 1 is not so with the wicked. To be departed or, or walking away from the only source of salvation is to be cursed. So to turn away from God is to curse yourself. And so they're cursed. And then he says they're lewd. They turn the grace of God, God's unmerited favor his undeserved love for us and they turn it into a license to sin and in particular the word lewdness means crude and offensive behavior in a sexual way so it's not vague he's being very specific these leaders live in sexual promiscuity and they give excuse for it like well this is just how i am but the bible teaches that that's not okay it's to break the law of God. Jesus died for our sins, not so we could continue in them, but so we could be set free from them. And then he says they're preeminent. They make themselves Lord instead of Jesus. So these are all the red flags that you can watch out for. So these certain men were in the past. And we have 1 Corinthians teaches us that in the Old Testament, we have all these stories that are there for our learning so that we can benefit from their failures many times. Yeah, if you got one of those Bibles that says heroes of the Bible, uh, you're going to have to recognize that the only hero in the Bible is Jesus, and all of the Old Testament, quote, heroes are really just failures. Read the story of Jacob. If you're reading the story of Jacob in Genesis, it should cause you to go, why does God keep blessing him? And it's a good question, because his life is not good. He's not godly. He's a heel grabber. That's what his name literally means. He's a cheap shot artist. And yet what we find is even as God cleanses him, he continues to lie about things that don't even matter. But the beauty is, and I heard someone say this yesterday, was, uh, you know, I get all upset about why God continues to bless guys like Jacob, and yet I've never cried out and go, Lord, why do you even bless me? That's the perspective we should have about our lives. But those examples from the past are there for our learning. And he gives three examples of apostates from the past. He says, those who were delivered from Egypt in slavery and bondage, those who didn't believe the promises of God, they got delivered from Egypt. And yet, because of their unbelief and their unwillingness to go into the land God promised Abraham, they died not inheriting fully what God had for them. And then the other example he gives is of angels. Apparently a third of the angels, if you read Revelation, a third of the angels were drawn, they followed the apostate, the original prankster, uh, Satan, whose name was Lucifer. Satan, the word Satan in the Hebrew actually just means against God, to oppose God. And so Satan, when he opposed God and wanted lordship instead of God, he took a third of the angels with them. And apparently when they sin, they don't get grace. They don't get salvation offered to them through Jesus. And as a matter of fact, they look at our salvation and they wonder at the fact that we get all this grace and all this patience and all these opportunities to repent when the angels don't get that. But the angels who sinned a third of them, they are reserved for the day of judgment because of their one step against God. And then he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. All but Lot and his daughters were judged because of their sexual immorality, 
because of the uh, comfort they had, because they didn't all have to work in the farm all the time to just get, you know, you know mouth to or work to table. They didn't have to worry about that. And so because of their easy, easy, e- uh, whew, talking is hard. <laughs> because of their ease of life, they had free time and they used that free time to explore sexually the things that God uh, disavowed, the things that were blasphemous, the things that were treacherous. And actually, Romans chapter 1 teaches that the sin of homosexuality that they were showing because they were going after strange flesh, that actually the judgment for that sin is the result of that sin, the physical ailments that come along from using the body in an unnatural way. And so they, for all eternity, Sodom and Gomorrah, get mentioned as an example of the judgment of God on all who steps outside of God's boundaries for sex. But in each situation, God is able to judge righteously, but at the same time, not without measure. It's not just like he goes in and and judges everybody. Instead, he keeps the righteous safe, even though the unrighteous are judged. And for those of us that are questioning what's going on in our nation, and you've heard people in the past say, we are ripe for judgment. I want to point out that for those who are in Christ, we are made righteous because of his blood, and we are walking in fellowship with the living God. If he judges the culture that we live in, he is able not only to judge the unrighteous, but he's able to keep those who are righteous safe and deliver them from judgment. Think about Noah and the ark. Ungodly days indeed. And yet what happened is even with one family, they were risen up in the ark because they got on it by faith. And God delivered them, though he was going to judge the whole world in a flood. And so um, that's one of the major points of this book. So he gives further description of the apostates in verse 8 and 9. He says, likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So he calls them dreamers, um, those who claim authority for their dreams. Interestingly enough, I was reading the book of Genesis and reading about Joseph, who was also a dreamer. And yet, we know that he was prophetic in his dreams because his dreams came to pass. But in this case, these guys would come along and they say, Hey, I had a a dream, and thus saith the Lord. And they would lead people astray by their dreams, and yet their dreams weren't coming to pass. And so he says, these dreamers, these apostates, they defile the flesh. And my New Living Translation says they lived immoral lives. They reject authority, or they defy authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. In other words, they scoff at the supernatural. They live only for what they can see, taste, and touch. They live for this world. And yet, he gives an example here that seems a little strange to me, but like I said, the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude, implies or assumes that you have a very deep knowledge or at least the people he was writing to, had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament. He says, yet concerning the body of Moses. So he's making this point about those who speak evil of dignitaries. He said, you would think that this is no big deal. And in our day and age, maybe you've seen television preachers. And they say, I rebuke Satan. And that's good. Like we should rebuke the ungodly. And yet what he makes the point of saying here is that we should make sure that when we rebuke dignitaries and those who are anointed by God, remember, Satan was an anointed cherub. Lucifer was a worship leader in heaven. He was essentially an archangel like Michael, the archangel. And yet what we find out is that he opposed God. And yet when the body of Moses, and it's in Numbers chapter 20, verse 2 through 13, Moses sins against God. He's supposed to represent God to man and man to God. And God tells him and Aaron, I want you to take this staff in your hand, Moses, because the people were complaining they didn't have water. This wasn't the first time. It's like when you're driving on a long family trip 
And one of the kids, even though you just stopped five minutes ago, one of the kids or all of them go, Daddy, I gotta go potty. And you're like, good grief, we just stopped three times in the last hour and we're trying to make time. And, and Moses is in that spot. And God speaks to Moses and he says, I want you to take your staff, I want you to go out to that gigantic rock light right there, I want you to speak to it, and out of that rock I'm going to provide water. This isn't just like a little trickle, by the way. It's for one million people. He's going to make a lake out of a rock. So he's going to speak to the rock, water's going to come out. That's what God tells him. And Moses is so fed up at this point, he doesn't speak to the rock. He takes his staff and he strikes the rock. He goes, here now, you rebels, and he strikes it twice. Well, God wasn't mad at them. He was a patient father. Moses was mad at them. Moses was supposed to be a type of Christ, to speak to stony hearts and to reveal and break them open and pour out of those hearts rivers of living water, and yet because of Moses being angry and sinning, he actually instead becomes a stumbling block and they start to think God's mad at them. And so he strikes the rock twice. Interesting enough that Jesus is struck for our healing and our forgiveness. But he misrepresented God. So God said, that's fine. I'm still going to provide water for the people, but you don't get to enter the land that I told you that you would enter in and take the people to. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 34, he goes up to this big mountain. He gets to look over the land of Canaan. He gets to see it, but not touch. Look, but don't touch. So as he's up there, the Lord takes his life. He dies at a ripe old age. And yet what it says here in Jude is that apparently Michael the archangel was to bury the body. And then Satan seems to have contended with Michael the archangel for the body. Why do you think that is? Well, many times the people that God uses mightily, we tend to idolize. So my thought is that perhaps uh, Michael the archangel was supposed to bury the body so nobody else could find it. And Satan was like, no, no, I'm going to make this thing. I'm gonna, maybe he was going to possess the body. Maybe he's going to use it to make it kind of a, an idol, if you will, or a relic. And, and make them start to worship Moses more than they did God, who they couldn't see. And so uh, Satan apparently tried to steal it. Michael was supposed to bury it. But notice that even the archangel, Michael, did not rebuke Satan directly. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. If you are going to rebuke anything spiritually, recognize that these principalities and powers that battle behind the scenes contending to take our souls, that you want to keep God between you and them because they are more powerful than us. That's the point he makes. Don't speak unwell of these dignitaries. Interestingly enough, if you look at the life of David, King David, he was on the run for years, though he was anointed king, and yet the king previous to him, King Saul, wanted to kill him and chased him down with his men, and yet David never rebuked Saul. He never raised his hand against the Lord's anointed, just like Michael the archangel didn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed who was Lucifer, though he was in sin. And so he says, watch out for those who speak evil of dignitaries. But then as we go on to verse 10, these, meaning the current apostates that were creeping in in their church, these speak evil of whatever they do not know. Whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. So their habits and their end. So he says that they speak evil of what they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these they corrupt themselves. He says, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. So it seems like we have some just one verse here that's full of inside information. But he says they speak evil of things that they are ignorant of. They're talking, but they don't know what they're talking about. They corrupt themselves in what they know naturally. They, they, they defile their own flesh. They're slaves to their fleshly desires. And then he compares them to animals, like brute beasts or unthinking animals. You guys remember the Sprite commercial? 
back in the 80s and 90s. Maybe it was not in the 80s and 90s, but the main phrase was obey your thirst. Is that still what they, they sell on? I mean, what's their phrase now? But it used to be obey your thirst. Well, that's great and all, but what if your thirst tells you that you can beat up somebody to steal their Sprite? Well, I guess it works good for a marketing campaign. Like, we don't care how you get it, but buy it. Do anything you can to get it. But it's kind of a bad piece of advice. Obey your thirst. Obey your flesh like an unthinking animal. Now, we were watching Jack Hanna yesterday morning on channel 12 point whatever on the antenna. And while we were watching Jack Hanna, they had this wildlife sanctuary for these... um, fastest cat help cheetahs and not the dorito cheetah who says obey your hunger but the cheetah and these cheetahs are all in captivity right but there's two that they showed us that they would go out and feed and these were wild cheetahs they were in fences they fed them a bowl of food every day but that cheetah would run up to the fence and then dash at the fence and scare the tar out of jack Hanna. And so they said, well, what you have to do to feed this one, you got to open the gate and like throw it in there real quick and close it so he doesn't get out. This seems like a dumb idea. <laughs> These animals are fast. They're, they're made to go and pursue something. Did you know something about cheetahs? Is that when they pursue one animal, if they do not get it, it takes them two days of sleep to rest up to be able to chase an animal again. That's how much energy they expound running 60 miles an hour. Imagine that. And so, I, I, fun fact, right? But my point is, animals don't think about the long-term consequences. They're not thinking that if Jack Hanna, or the guy that owns the sanctuary, is killed by them, or scarred, or mortally wounded, that they ain't going to get no bowl tomorrow. They're not thinking about, they're, they're going to bite the hand that feeds. They don't care. They're hungry. In the same way, these apostates are like brute beasts. They're not thinking about the long-term consequences. They are obeying their flesh in every possible way. They're not in control like they think they are. Their flesh is. And so they'll do anything to appease their flesh. They'll do anything to appease, really, what's their God. Their God is their stomach. So when they are destroyed for their sin, they've earned it. Woeful sorrow awaits them, nothing more, nothing less. He says they follow the steps of Cain. Now in Genesis chapter 4, we have Cain and Abel, the first brotherly rival. And Cain and Abel offer two different things. Cain offers what he does, and Abel offers what he does. Abel is a shepherd, Cain is a gardener. And so they both offer up what they have to give, and yet there seems to be this implication that there is only one way to have your sins forgiven and dealt with, and that was through the death of an animal. Innocent animal gets sacrificed, and there's bloodshed, and yet Cain wants to offer plants. So he offers these vegetables, and God don't want no vegetables. He wants death for sin. And so as a result of that, Cain gets a little uh, jaded and bitter And when he finds his brother out in the field one day, instead of going, hey, Abel, could you teach me how to sacrifice properly to God? He hates Abel and he kills Abel. So he's a man who wants to do his own thing and he doesn't care about God's authority. And so he hates and kills. Uh, Again, another opportunity to see the, the parallels of slaves to greed. Verse 22 through 25. Um. I think I've, I feel like I've said the wrong thing. Okay, Genesis 4, read verse 10 and 11. Okay, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They hate and murder. They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Now, we don't have time to hit the whole story today, but if you read Numbers chapter 22 through 25, what you'll find is this character that somehow has a direct line to God. He's a prophet. And yet he's a prophet that's more interested in gaining money, he's greedy, than he is in prophesying the things of God. And so this ungodly king, an enemy of Israel, wants to wipe out Israelites. And so he goes to Balaam and he says, I want you to prophesy 
and I want you to curse the people of God. And, and Balaam says, well, the only way that I can prophesy anything is that I can only prophesy what God tells me. I can only tell what God gives me to say. And so he keeps blessing the people of Israel rather than cursing them. But he also keeps talking to this man who wants to curse the Israelites. And more and more, this king offers Balaam money and riches and power. And so Balaam keeps just, you know, listening to this guy. And finally, he's not able to curse the people of Israel, but he can give this king a little insight. He goes, I can't curse them, but I can tell you that if they go after sin and they start to serve their flesh, that God can no longer bless them. So if you take your ladies, get them all dressed up nice and put some makeup on them and bring them close to the camp of the Israelites, the men won't be able to help themselves. They're going to serve their flesh. They're going to sin against God. So I'm not, I, I'm not cursing them, but I'm telling you how they can be cursed on their own. And so the Midianites go close, and the men of Israel start to sin with the ladies, even though they're not supposed to intermarry or have sexual relations outside of the nation of Israel, and then brings them into a place where they are judged for their sin. But what's the error of Balaam is that he thought if they were tempted to sin, that God would completely wipe out his people and reject them all. But again, God's able to judge those who sin and to keep those who are righteous from judgment. And so the people of Israel were not utterly wiped out like the king wanted. Instead, the people that sinned were then judged. And those who did not sin were kept by the love of God. Another example, the people of Korah. Now, the people of Korah were a people that were Levites. And if you know anything about the Old Testament law, there were two groups. There were priests and there were Levites. The priests did the spiritual sacrifice. They would go into the Holy of Holies. They would offer the animals. But the Levites would carry the tabernacle and all of the worship instruments because they were traveling people. The, the tabernacle, the presence of God, would go with them everywhere that they went. And so every time they took up camp and, the, and they were led away, they would have to carry all the implements, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, all of the ornamental stuff that we read about in Leviticus. But they were never to minister incense or they were never to bring sacrifice before the Lord. Well, at the time that Moses and Aaron were the priests, Moses and Aaron were leading the people. And at a certain time there in number 16, Korah comes up and they go, hey, we know God too. Why can't we minister before God? And you know this always happens because the people that are doing all the labor and the practical work, even in your workplace, get upset about the people that are doing the administration. They're wearing suits and ties. They're in meetings all the time. They work, make way more money than us. And yet we got to do all the grunt work, right? And, and we live in a, in a society where there's still that divide between blue collar and white collar. And many times when you're on the blue collar side of things, you watch those guys and go, they get all the perks, they get a cell phone, they get, you know, the company car, all the stuff that goes along with that. And yet you're the one out in the rain when stuff's actually happening. And so that's what was going on. You had the Levites and the priests. So the sons of Korah, who were supposed to be the laborers essentially, they get a little tired of Moses and Aaron kind of being with their white-collar jobs. Their hands are never dirty. They, you know, they kind of get to make the calls and the administrative decisions. And so uh, the people of Korah come up to Moses and they go, Hey, we know God too. Why don't you let us offer sacrifice? Why don't you let us bring our censers up and burn incense? Seems like a pretty cushy job. And so Moses, in response to their rebellion, doesn't say, Get back to work you minion, he actually said, he throws himself to the ground in number 16, and he prays for them. He says, whoa, wait a minute here, and he intercedes for them in their rebellion. So they continue to press, and so God says, hey, don't worry about it, Moses. Go ahead and you tell them that they bring their censers, which was basically like a lantern with the incense, and you bring your censers and come to the meeting of the tabernacle at the door of the entrance, and we'll both offer sacrifice or incense burning up at the same time, and those who God has chosen 
will be fine. And those who God is going to judge for rebellion and not staying in their place, I'm going to do a new thing. And so he tells them this. And he says, sons of Korah, if, if one of us is in sin, the one that's in sin, God's going to do a new thing. And so essentially what happens is the long story, but they end up at the tents of the sons of Korah and God judges the sons of Korah. And Moses even says to them, if you are not swallowed up by the earth, then God has not sent me and I'm not his priest or his prophet. But if he does a new thing and the ground opens up and all of your people, including your families, are swallowed whole, then, then I'm the one God's called to do that. And so at the time that God's getting ready to judge them, he warns everybody and he says, if, if you trust God and you want to stay in your place, get away from the sons of Korah because it's about to go down. And literally the, the earth opens up and they are swallowed alive into a pit. And so what does this all mean? He says, in like manner, if you read in, in verse 8, these dreamers defiled the flesh reject authority, and they speak evil at dignitaries. Woe to them, verse 11, for they have gone in the way of Cain, they've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. They will be judged, is what he's saying. But in verse 12, he says, these are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, they serve only themselves. They're clouds without water, carried about by the winds, Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, the raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. They claim to serve God. (laughs) Who doesn't? They are among you, he says. They do not fear me, he says. They are clouds without water. Now picture this. The Israelites are living in the Middle East. They're essentially in a well-watered desert. Think about it. So if clouds come about, what do they promise? They promise rain. And if you live in an agrarian society and a cloud shows up, people are dancing like, "Woo! we're about to get rain. The crops are going to grow. We're not going to lose everything. We're going to get to eat. So clouds that show up and they promise rain and yet they don't produce anything that's nourishing are kind of a ripoff. They're this false hope. He says, these guys are clouds without water. They're showing up and promising great things, but you're still going to be famished afterwards. You're still going to be dry. We're still going to be in a drought. They're trees without fruit. Again, living in any culture. If you don't have save a lot to go down the street and grab some apples, and you're walking through the desert and you're hungry, you're looking for the snack shack. It's a tree. And if those trees are growing, there's only one growing season. He says, these trees in late autumn, when they ought be producing fruit, got nothing. There's nothing to nourish you. They're wasting space and nutrients and everything else. And yet they're not producing any fruit. Interestingly enough, as believers, we ought to produce fruit, right? Galatians 6, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are what ought to identify a true sent one of God, a true disciple of Jesus. He says they're trees without fruit, they're reefs. Now, I was reading this in the New Living Translation, and where he talks about they're foaming up, they're reefs covered by foam that cause shipwreck, is what New Living Translation says. So when you're in a ship and you're going on the sea, and there's foam on the water, you can't see what's underneath it. And you might be close to a, an island that's an island chain that's out in the middle of the water, and yet if there's foam, what does it do? It, it keeps you from seeing what's really below the surface. And so foam might seem just like regular waves, but sometimes under foam, it's because of reefs. Anybody's familiar with surfing? Sometimes those guys are able to surf in the conditions that are sent, but many times if they hit the water real hard, the waves are created because of the reefs under the surface. We were at Millstream Gardens yesterday. There's lots of foam there right now because of all the rain we've had in the last two weeks, but interestingly enough, the greatest foam is around the rocks that are just slightly under the surface. 
But if you're in a kayak and you, you, you're not really navigating well and you get close to one of those rocks, it could spin you out pretty easily. And that's what he's saying about these apostates. They can spin you out and you won't even see it coming. They foam up great words and yet they're going to cause shipwreck in your spiritual life. He says they're wandering stars for whom blackness and darkness is reserved forever. And if you read in Matthew chapter 8 and then chapter 22 and then 25, blackness of darkness is not a happy place. Um, And Matthew chapter 8 verse 12 Jesus speaking says, but the sons of the kingdom, after, well, he's, he's healing somebody. And in verse 10, uh, after this centurion has expressed deep faith in what Jesus can do to, to heal his servant, Jesus heard it, that he, his expression of faith, and he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Speaking of those that were not Israelites, those who hadn't seen the miracles of the past. But the sons of the kingdom, meaning people that are born to Israel, will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. He's saying, you know, just because you've had experiences with God in the past doesn't mean anything if you don't trust God today. He says there will be people that are in the nation of Israel, born there, descendants of Abraham, and yet because they don't believe what God has done, they'll perish. Reserved for blackness and darkness. And the other references are there for you. But his whole teaching is essentially, don't be affected by these apostates. Don't follow them. Contend for the faith. Call them out for what they are, like Jude does. What's interesting is if we will abide in Jesus and we'll let him change our lives, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says that we will prove what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. We'll be in line with who he is. And so I'm going to read for you verse uh, 14. He says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. And if you remember the genealogy from Adam all the way to Abraham, what you find is there's this character, Enoch, who's called out. And, and there's actually an apocryphal book because we don't know who actually wrote it. The Catholics carry the apocryphal books, but in there is the book of Enoch. And there's all much more stuff said about Enoch. But what we have in our Bible, in the canon of Scripture, what we've accepted as definitely by God We have in Enoch, we just have one verse that says Enoch was a godly man in his generation and he walked with the Lord all the days of his life and then one day God took him. And if you just read it real quickly, you'll miss it, but it says that he walked with God and then he was not. God took him. He did not die physically. But the point is, is that apparently during the days of his life, he prophesied about these men these that would reject God and, and turn from Him and do their own thing. He says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment on all. We will all be judged according to our works. And yet He says, To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. I don't know about you guys, but the word ungodly, I think, needs to be underlined there. That's the whole point. God comes with his saints to judge the ungodly. Do you know that we will judge from the judgment of God? We will be joint judges with Jesus. We'll judge nations in in the eternal kingdom. But he says he comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict those who are ungodly among them. Convict means to draw people to God, not push them away. Not to condemn them. He says he will come with ten thousands of his saints to judge all and to convict those who are ungodly. Conviction is what leads men and women to repentance. 
Conviction of the Holy Spirit is a gift. It's a grace to expose our sin, to show us that we're ungodly. And for those who are apostates, who have turned from God, they deserve to be convicted of their sin and given the same opportunity to repent that you and I have been given. He says in verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words, They use their words to flatter people in order to gain advantage. Imagine that. They flatter people to get what they want. That's what the apostates do. So in verse 17, yeah, 17, he continues. We've talked this whole time in the letter of Jude about them. But I want to stop and ask the question, are you among them? Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Do you walk according to your own fleshly desires or you do, do you follow the desire of your king that you claim to follow? So then verse 17, he says, but you. Let's not focus on everybody else. He says, but you. Beloved, remember the words which were spoken before the, by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. Jesus warned about these folks. He's not surprised by them. We shouldn't be either. He's warned them, uh, us, and the apostles warned us. These are sensual persons who cause divisions. And look at this. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit of God is, there's unity. Where there's no Holy Spirit, there can be no unity. We're all too different. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it says, when God poured out the Spirit, that there was unity among the brethren. The gift of the Spirit is what gives us all the same life to dwell together in unity. And so the the Spirit was poured out and there was unity. And yet those that don't have the Spirit, you'll notice you won't have unity with. For those of you that have walked with the Lord and are walking with the Lord, you know when you start to testify of God's grace and what he's done in your life, you know when you share with a certain person that it's like they get it and there's just this excitement and there's this joy about what God has done. But you also know that you've tried to share the same story with somebody that doesn't have the spirit of God and it's like they're like, oh, that's cool. And they move on. They don't even care. It's like they're like, well, why are you telling me that story? And I can't explain it unless you've experienced it, but that happens. But my point is, is that God's spirit is in you. And if it's not in them, they they won't understand the things of the spirit. So he says, but you, beloved. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. He says, the way that you contend is keep praying in the Spirit, keeping yourself in a place where God can bless you, and looking for the mercy, the compassion of Jesus unto eternal life for yourself and for those around you. So the way to keep yourself in the love of God is to pray. It's a simple thing, but it's a huge thing. We battle against those that are opposing God in prayer. And it's not a thing you can do naturally. You have to pray in the Holy Spirit. And then he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Live in the truth daily. And then he says, look for ways to express the love of God in the lives of others. To show the mercy of Jesus Christ. And then he gets more specific, verse 22. On some, have compassion. How much compassion? More than you have to give. That's what mercy is. It's compassion. It's the the man who was walking along the road and, and he was beat up by the murderers and the robbers. And the good Samaritan came along and gave us a perfect example of compassion. How much are you to do to, to lift this person up? More than you can do from one day. Love people. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Who's next to me? Show compassion. On some, have compassion. And I think this is important because we're in a day and age where people don't show compassion. We don't got time for that. 
But Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. My wife was le- reading something to me. I'm excited to watch the, the story of uh, Mr. Rogers. Um, I'm excited to watch the movie. There's a documentary, and then there's the movie. I didn't get to see the movie in the theaters, but I want to see it. But something that Mr. Rogers said was, the three, there's three ways, um, what is it, three ways to have success in life? Three ways to change the world, essentially. Uh, well, number one, be kind. Number two, be kind. And number three, be kind. Be kind. It takes more time than you're going to be willing to give, but do it. Be kind. But then the other thing he says, and I love this, for others, <laughs> show compassion on some. But for others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment that's defiled by the flesh. For some, be compassionate. For some, they're like a teenager driving around on our roads. There's no ditch. There's no shoulder. They don't need grace. They need the hell scared out of them. They need the fear of the Lord put in them because they are going to perish because everybody around them keeps telling them what a great kid they are. And they're not. They look good and they're headed to hell. And for some adults, they need the hell scared out of them. They need to know that the wages of sin is what? Death. Not a slap on the wrist. Eternal separation from God. And not only that, but the wages of sin is affecting the people that live in their home. They're leading their children to hell. They need the hell scared out of them. And that is loving to warn them. It's loving for me to warn you. Are you leading your children and your families to hell comfortably? Or are you doing all that you can to show them that without Christ, they will perish? But in Christ, life will become so much more meaningful. doesn't mean it will be easier means it will be purposeful and will bring glory to God, which is what we were made for. Save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. If you show up to somebody's house and it's on fire and they're stuck in it, are you asking them questions about, hey, you know, I, I don't want to stumble you, but I think you might burn. No, you're ripping them out of the house because they will die if you don't. You know, all of these are things that we can do, right? He says, keep yourself in the love of God. Build yourself up through praying in the Holy Spirit, uh, looking for ways to show compassion. But many times there's a group of us, maybe it's not you, we get all hung up on what we're supposed to do. And when we don't do it, we lose our minds. I'm failing. I'm struggling. God can't do it because I didn't show up today. Jude knows this because he's failed before, and so he writes to close the letter by saying this. Now to him who is able. Underline that. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. To him who is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, uh, he is faithful who also will do it. God's called us to do our part, right? There are our works that we need to be doing that prove that we're saved. Not to save ourselves, but to prove who we say we are. But it's God who is able to do it. Is it God that's in control, or is it me that I have to make a choice? And my answer for you is that the Bible teaches yes. God is in complete control, and we can do nothing apart from Him. But apart from Him, we can do nothing. So we have to do something. But if we fail, maybe you've had a rough week. Maybe you've had a rough day on the job. Maybe you've completely lost it and failed in front of your family. I want to point out that it's God who is able to do what we cannot. And that's why we need him. If I fail, recognize that I I have to recognize that God alone is faithful. He's the only one that's never failed. God alone is able. He's the only one that's able. God alone is the Savior. You're not. 
God alone has wisdom. James says if you lack wisdom, ask for it. He'll pour it out liberally, overflowing. God alone is king. He's in control. He's in charge. If he allows something in your life, then he's going to use it, and he's able to work through it. God alone is powerful. He can do anything, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And God alone is eternal. He says, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power. He alone, his kingdom is the only one that will last beyond all the, all the kingdoms of this world. And so I would encourage you, contend for the faith and recognize that God will contend for the faith through you. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We can't do it on our own, and we can't do it without taking some steps that seem blind. But we've got to learn to trust Him. And this is what trusting Him looks like. So Father, thank you for allowing us to see the pen of Jude express some pretty hard truths, expose some truths that the stories of the past were supposed to teach us, to expose the apostates, in the church today, we need to see that there are apostates. They've turned from God. They're serving their own uh, agenda. And yet we need to call them for what they are. And yet, thank you for calling out the apostate in us. Each one of us have ways that we need to let you expose. Maybe ways that we're serving our own desires rather than your desires. Maybe ways that we're being led by our own feelings rather than following with the, the simple commands of Scripture. Maybe some of us are struggling with greediness and it's causing us to go in the way of Balaam. Maybe some of us hate a brother or a sister and it's going to cause us ultimately to murder them, uh, maybe not physically, but uh, with our words. And maybe some of us just need to give our lives to you for the first time. And so, Father, for those that need your kindness and compassion to recognize that you love them, help us to express that. Help us to help us to receive that. And for those that need pulled out, even hating the garment that's defiled by the flesh, I pray, Father, that you would call them to repentance through pointing out that we all need Jesus. So, Father, you know what everybody needs, and I pray that your spirit would go before today. Give us wisdom to walk in holiness before you. Give us the ability to speak into the lives of those around us that don't know you. And Lord, help us to keep ourselves in the faith, praying in the Spirit, trusting you for daily bread, trusting you to bring people that need your words. And Father, in the meantime, keep us where we need to be so that we bring you glory and dominion and power and majesty and might. And Lord, we look forward to spending eternity with you. But until then, make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.